Hello, this is the Podgoblin's Hat, a podcast about the Moomins. This is episode nine, which is about tiny sisters, big floods and messy volcanoes. I'm Dave, a person who wants to know whether we have to go to heaven, and if we do, how do we get down again? I'm Nina, a person who always feels as if someone were angry with me. And we're reading all the way through Tuve Janssen's Moomin's books together. It's the first time for me. Whereas if I wrote my memoirs, the Moomin's would be featured pretty regularly. We're starting by reading the storybooks for children in order of publication, and eventually we will cover all of Tove Janssen's Moomin stories. And today we're reading the first half of Moomin Summer Madness, up to and including Chapter 5. So I'm in the middle of moving and this book feels incredibly relevant to that. Also, as part of my moving experience, Nick Funds has gone rogue. (gasps) None of us know where he is now. We periodically, me and my partner, ask each other, do you know where Nick Funds is? Apparently last time he was seen, it was in a pile of clothes, but those clothes are packed. So he is either packed or he's lurking and we're both terrified he's going to pop out at us any time but we're also we're really worried that we'll get to york where we're moving to and nick funds will be gone forever he'll have sailed to sea with the hattie fatness well that's his prerogative you know so for listeners if you don't know who nick funds is you can listen back to episode one for full context but the shorthand is he's a toy he's evil He looks like Snufkin, but he is not Snufkin. He is the opposite of Snufkin, and therefore he is Nick Funds. So we have different copies. Well, mine's a Puffin book. Mine's a Puffin too. Yours is nicer though. It's a beautiful picture, and it's all in pink. It's Snufkin meeting a Moomin in a boat in front of a theatre that's kind of beautifully lit. In purple and gold. It's a nice front cover. I do like it. You've got a different one though, right? I've got the awful monochromatic one, which is deeply boring. It's got two illustrations, I assume, from two different parts of the book. Yeah, it's a composite. Yeah, I don't like that. Don't Don't like that. that. (laughs) It's got some Moomins climbing a tree. It's got Moomin Mama at the bottom with a handbag sort of directing operations. And in the background, we've got a Snufkin in a rowing boat. This one's ugly. That one's not nice. This one, I mean, of course, it would be better if it was purple, but... For pink lovers out there, this is the (laughs) book to get. So the Swedish name for this book originally was Dangerous Midsummer. Interesting. So no madness involved. Well, so far it hasn't been very mad. It's been pretty dangerous. Yeah, I guess it has. Danger seems more appropriate. Yeah. They've gone for the alliteration. What's our themes? So our themes for this book, as they are for all of the books, we've got relationships, And the specific theme for Moomin Summer Madness is appearances. 
should we start with the synopsis then? Let's do the synopsis. We're starting with a melancholy spring. Snufkin has not come back after his usual disappearance over the winter. He's never been this late before. Moomin Troll's kind of pining away. Moomin Mama is making a bark boat for Moomin Troll, as she does every spring. And it seems like the Mimble's daughter and Little Mai have moved in. The Mimble's daughter has been placed into this position of being a parent to Little Mai or a guardian. According to the Mimble's daughter, the Mimble has given up parenting just Little Mai. Because <laughs> she has a lot of other children. There's a volcano just casually going off in the background. It's like belching certain <laughs> fire and smoke into the atmosphere. Yeah. Nobody's really very bothered about this it's like very pompeii vibes yeah 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 yeah. well they've been through a lot they've had a comet just missed them they're very used to apocalyptic events yeah they're just old hat now the star of this book absolutely passes the bechdel test yes at last finally (laughs) and the bechdel test if i can remember the rules is two named women characters talking to each other about something that is not men Yep. And that happens all the time in this book. But truly, I do not think it happens in like Comet and Moomin Land. I agree. This might be the first time that a Moomin book has passed the Bechdel test. So for the first time, I feel like we've got a real sort of female dominance in terms of like which characters are doing stuff and moving the story forward. But Moomin Troll's still here. He's pining away. He's hanging out by the pool and looking into it. Moomin Mama comes along to give him the bark boat. For people who was wondering what bark boats are, they're not boats made of bark. They are a boat with three or more masts rigged at angles, the kinds that you might see in a bottle, I think, yeah, quite often. Yeah, that's what the illustration looks like. And he has a sort of anxious moment about whether or not they'll be a little bark dinghy this year. The Mimble's daughter keeps losing little Mai and shouting for her and threatening her and it doesn't work. (laughs) It's too hot and everyone's getting really grumpy. I mean, they did this the last book as well. It got too hot and everyone got really grumpy. Moomin Mama suggests that they all sleep in the garden for a little change. During that garden sleepover, disaster strikes. A literal crack opens up in the ground and swallows up Moomin Troll's brand new blue toothbrush. So everyone moves back into the house. The volcano's doing stuff. It's like quite alarming. Moomin Papa's loving it. It's reminding him of his youth. (laughs) Yeah. Little Mai's quite loving it as well. She sort of likes apocalyptic events. She loves disaster. (laughs) I mean, we've seen that before. Yeah. But it's quite worrying and they all go and sleep upstairs. And then in the morning, Moomin Valley is flooded. Downstairs is all underwater, which means that they can't get to the kitchen to get breakfast. So Moomin Papa regretfully, but also quite gleefully, bores a hole in the ground. He's loving soaring his own floor up. It does make him a bit sad to destroy his own floor, but he's also really loving it. It's really exciting as well. Moomin Mama has this real moment seeing her kitchen from above. It's like a real philosophical perspective yeah. shift moment. She loves it. She's like, huh, I'll probably never do dishes again. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. We support you in that, Moomin Mama. Moomin Troll volunteers to go diving for breakfast and the coffee tin <laughs> because Moomin Troll loves diving. And Snort Maiden asks Moomin Troll's parents to forbid him from doing it. And Moomin Mama's like, why? If it thrills him, let him do it. If you like it, do it. Yeah. Smoke, dive, <laughs> go and visit some strange people at the top of a mountain. Yeah, Anything, sure. just do it. <laughs> so then there's this great illustration, which I think we should put on social media, this full page illustration of the kitchen underwater and 
Moomin Troll swimming through it, gathering all the breakfast things. Luckily, Moomin Mama had screwed on the lid of the coffee tin really tightly, so the coffee's all right. Get your essentials. There's some soggy bread. They have a very exciting sort of picnic breakfast at the top of the house. Meanwhile, outside, there are some displaced people hanging out on the (laughs) roof of the shed. (laughs) One of them is called the Mouse Wife. Yeah. She is not impressed with the Moomins. She's looking at them and being like, must be nice to be them, still have a house. This is all because of young people these days. In the olden days, we wouldn't have allowed this to happen. (laughs) The mouse wife has deep boomer vibes. It feels very much like somebody blaming the millennials, like, oh, the avocado toast has caused this flood. (laughs) The mouse wife is talking to two new characters. Two new characters. We've met Wampa. The mouse wife describes him as a young man. And he's explaining that, like, how could we possibly have made the flood happen? We haven't got that much power. And the mouse wife's like, but the front page of the (laughs) newspaper said, though. And there's another new character called Missabelle. And Missabelle is a personification of anxiety and depression. Absolutely. She's just very sad. She doesn't always know why she's sad. She always feels very abandoned. At this point, Moomin Mama sticks her head out the balcony and invites them over. The mouse wife is like, no, thank you. Actually, I don't like you. But Wampa goes, Miss Abel's like, I haven't been personally invited. But then when Wampa <laughs> goes, she's like, oh, I feel so terribly abandoned. So she jumps on his log behind him and they sort of paddle over on the log to the Moomin house. They all make their introductions. Everything's very polite. Meanwhile, the water keeps rising. Polite chit chat while the whole of the world around you is being destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> so soon everybody's on the roof. Um. <laughs> this book really goes full at you. I like that about it. None of this, like, wait for most of the book for a comet. It's like, crisis, stray away. Uh, Moomin Mama has managed to convince everybody to save the sitting room suite by moving all the nice furniture onto the roof. But she keeps having to, like, move on the roof because more and more <laughs> of the roof is getting underwater. And she really doesn't like for her tail tip to get wet, especially when there's company over. Maybe making the tail more than just a soul, but kind of a sexuality. I don't know if it's sexual. I thought of it as, like, you wouldn't take your bra off. Well, you've got guests around. The tail would be like the breasts, as in they're not only for sex, but you don't show them because of sex, right? I don't think that the thing about taking your bra off when someone is home is because it would be titillating. I think it's because it's a level of informality. So luckily, because there's hardly any roof left, another house comes floating toward them on the horizon. It looks like a really, really weird house. For a start, it's missing one of its walls. It's got like a smiley face and a crying face on top of it. And it's got like loads of curtain stuff. I mean, it's not much of a reveal when it's revealed what this house is. And I think that even kids are supposed to get what it is straight away. Yeah. And the enjoyment is that the Moomins don't. Yeah, the Moomins don't for ages. So it comes along, they decide to hop on board. They bring the sitting room suite everybody moves into the new house they drift away from the moomin house and when the moomin house is on the horizon all they can see is a little flag on top and it makes moomin papa kind of sad and moomin mama says it was a really nice house you built but you know soon this house will feel normal to us but it does not because it is not a normal house it's got weird curtains at the front it's got pictures in the roof it's full of fake things like unreal wooden apples 
It's all very disconcerting. There doesn't seem to be anyone there except maybe a ghost who keeps laughing at them. So it's quite hard to settle in, but they're trying to settle in. The Mimble's daughter, Snork Maiden, and Miss Abel, a few days later, are doing their hair. And the Mimble's daughter and the Snork Maiden are kind of bullying Miss Abel for having bad hair. Miss Abel feels very ganged up on and storms out and finds a room full of heads on sticks. Yeah, it's very Bluebeard, that moment. Yeah. Luckily, they're all facing away from her, because, like, (laughs) what would it have felt like if they'd looked at her? (laughs) And she discovers that the hair of all of these heads is detachable. So she tries on a few of them, like she tries on this beautiful gold ringleted one, and then she tries on this red-haired one, and then she tries on this like raven black with gold. And the more hairs she tries on, the worse she feels. Meanwhile, the snork maiden is thinking like maybe she should wear frocks. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, they have created this feeling in each other because snork maiden has commented on Misabel's hair and Misabel has commented on the Snort Maiden not wearing frocks and why doesn't she wear clothes? Because Misabel and the Mimble's daughter both wear clothes. They do. So she goes off and finds a room full of frocks, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of frocks. It's so overwhelming and exciting that she has to stand on her head for a bit to like calm down. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> But then she has sort of the same experience as Missabel, where like the more frocks she tries on, the more she doesn't know which one is the nicest and gets mired in doubt and ends up not wearing any. So they can bond over that. They sort of talk about how it would be easier if there were just two wigs or just two frocks. Yeah, it's nice, right? It starts out, they shame each other, but it ends up with them understanding each other. So they've been here for a few days and... This, like, pile of stuff in the corner keeps laughing at them. (laughs) And Moomin Mama has taken to leaving a bowl of whatever they're eating next to the pile of stuff in the evening. And the bowl is always empty the next morning. But whoever the cackling person in the corner is has not chosen to reveal themselves. And the Moomins, very respectfully, have not chosen to look in the pile of stuff. Another, like, politeness gone wrong moment. They've been eating porridge for a while. I guess it's really hard to go to the shops when you're in a floating house with only three walls. On the third day of serving porridge, the mysterious somebody steps out from the pile of stuff and says, this is the third day. This is the third day you've done porridge. I hate porridge. And they're like, tomorrow's going to be gruel. And she's like, I hate gruel too. Gruel is worse. So the person is an old stage rat called Emma. And she used to be married to Mr. Philijonk, who was a theatre director. Yep. And she knows all about the theatre, and she informs them that they're in a theatre. That's why all the stuff is weird. Like, those pictures that keep coming down behind you, that's the background. Those lights, they're the footlights. Like, that thing that you're using as a pantry, it's the prompt box. Of course you're in a theatre, and you've been doing the wrong things with the props. None of you understand anything about the theatre. She's so offended because, like, theatre is her life, and they yes. don't even know what it is. So they start trying to include Emma at mealtimes, and they try to be very polite to Emma, but Emma is not very polite to them. She's a very, very rude rat. She's very rude. She keeps reminding them that they're in a theatre. And they're all like, if you say so, but we don't know what a theatre is. Yeah, because she doesn't tell them straight away as well. She, she keeps the information back, but then gets annoyed that they don't know it. Yeah. I hate that. So meanwhile, the theatre is still floating along. And they float into what looks like a jungle. There are midges, but that's fine because midges can't bite through. Moomin fur. There are stinging ants and 
The Mimble's daughters are worried that the stinging ant will sting little Mai and turn her as big as an orange. And there's lovely trees. Moomin Papa decides that they should sort of tie themselves to a tree for a while. He does this by jamming a walking stick into the prompt box and then tying the stick to a tree. Moomin Troll and the Snort Maiden decide to spend a night in the very nice tree. Misabelle sort of suggests that she feels left out. So Moomin Mama says, oh, you should spend a night in the tree as well. And Miss Abel's like, no, it all feels too sad. So, okay. <laughs> Moomin Mama makes a breakfast basket for Moomin Troll and the Snork Maiden. And as they're setting up their camp in the tree, Moomin Troll whistles. Emma comes rushing out and is like, stop whistling on stage. It's super unlucky. Don't you know anything? And everybody settles down to sleep. In the night, Emma takes a stick out of the prompt box because that was a misuse of the prompt box and that's not what the prompt box is for so obviously the theatre comes on board and starts drifting away from the tree where Moomin Troll and the Snort Maiden are sleeping the Moomin parents sort of roll over in their sleep and go is there something to worry about? no, go back to sleep the next morning Moomin Troll and the Snort Maiden wake up alone and scared the Snort Maiden can't stop crying Moomin Troll decides to be very manly about it and reassuring and they start exploring the forest. And they're calling each other deer in some kind of, like, parody of parents. Yeah, yeah. They keep playing at kidnapping each other. Which is a weird kidnap kink. Yeah. Like, I think he even says to comfort her, like, let's pretend I've kidnapped you like I often do. Well, so... It's not made in right at the beginning of the book wanted to play kidnapping and Moomin Troll was too yep. busy pining over Snufkin. And so now she says, I'm pretending that you've kidnapped me. So she's already doing that to reassure herself. And he just plays along. He's like, of course, dear. Yes, I have kidnapped you. And we've seen in the Finn family Moomin Troll in the unfortunate Tarzan bit. Yeah. That, that is a regular part of their gameplay. Yep. So they go walking through the jungle. There's a lovely moss floor and they see some tiny forest people making a fire, and it reminds them, oh, it's Midsummer Eve. Yeah, it's the Midsummer Bonfire. Yeah. Bonfires get their name from bone fires that were burnt at Midsummer. This isn't made of bones, it's made of wood, I believe. It's very like that scene in The Hobbit where they see the trolls all around the fire, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is. Like that illustration. So it's sort of a fun little twist on that, you know, in The Hobbit, trolls are really big. And in this, like the strangers around the bonfire are really tiny. In Tolkien, the trolls are big and made of stone. In Janssen, the trolls are furry and look like hippos. And they start reminiscing about Midsummer's past and all the traditions that they would do. Meanwhile, at the theatre, like Moomin Mama is going absolutely frantic. <laughs> she is distraught. She can't eat. She only sort of cheers up when Moomin Papa is distraught because then she needs to comfort him. Standard heteronormative behaviour. Miss Abel finds this to be a wonderful opportunity to get all her crying out because everybody else is upset as well. So she yeah. changes into a black dress and does a lot of crying. I'm not even unhappy about this. I just never get to cry for a reason. What an opportunity. Little Mai has found a trap door and inside the trap door, like, it's all water. And she thinks that'd be a great place to, like, chuck <laughs> villains. So she spends all day staring into the trap door looking for a villain. But as the illustration shows, the only villain she sees is herself reflected back in the water. Because Little Mai is a bit of a villain. She's the best kind of a villain. Yeah. An unrepentant one. Yes. <laughs> then... Moomin Troll and the Snork Maiden come upon a house in the forest 
and it's all decorated with like boughs of greenery and stuff. And meanwhile, at the theatre, something happens. There's like a big lurch. Everything falls over and little Mai falls in through the trapdoor and cannot be seen in the water. Emma is triumphant and is like, that'll teach you. Whistle on stage. End of part one. What a rip-roaring start. Yeah. And I'm like, yes, this is why I like the Moomins. <laughs> Exploits of Moomin Papa was fine, but it still wasn't giving me my Moomin fix. No, but this was great. This is a banger. What did you think of the first half of the book then? I thought it was great. This one is really fun. It's really pacey. It introduces like a bunch of cool new characters or reintroduces. I feel like we didn't really get to know the Mimble's daughter and Little Mai very much in the last book. I'm a big fan of Miss Abel. Really yeah. like her. I thought you would be <laughs> a fan of Miss Abel. I thought you would be both a fan of Miss Abel and of Little Mai. Yeah. And I feel like if you combine those two characters together with maybe a little sprinkle of Hemilyn, then you've you've got you. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, I cannot deny. <laughs> you said that you made a lot of very important and relevant notes. What's maybe one of your subheadings? What do you want to talk about first? Shall we start with the elephant not in the room which is where are some of the characters and uh what's happened we do not have sniff or the snork they have just disappeared as has the hemulin where is sniff where is snork i mean i'm sad that sniff's gone and the snork's gone in a way but in a way i'm happy as we've said, getting rid of some of the men is a good way of uh, showcasing all of these tremendous women. Well, and not overcrowding the book. I feel Indeed. like Tova's very random about who she'll put in a book. Yeah. She'll be like, oh, I've run out of room. Just like chuck those two out. Doesn't matter. Like she doesn't feel the need to explain where people have gone necessarily. Right. Like, where's the silk monkey? Who knows? We still don't know. But I suspect <laughs> the elements of the silk monkey have been repackaged into Little Mai. Yeah. But anyway, in my fanon, which for listeners is fan canon, uh, what I think's happened is that the muddler and the fuzzy have taken Sniff with them. Oh, nice. When they visited, they've gone off and they've taken Sniff because they didn't really mean to lose Sniff. Sniff <laughs> didn't mean to lose them. That They weren't bad parents as far as we understand. And I suspect that if the Snork and maybe even the Hemelin, I had forgotten the Hemelin, I'm sorry to say, but I feel like the Snork would have got on quite well with Hodgkins. Yeah. And so would the Hemelin. So maybe the Snork and the Hemelin have gone off with Hodgkins. On the Ocean Oxtra. To invent... <laughs> new things and to think about maths and physics and uh, how court cases are run. Okay, I like it. Because I feel like Sniff, at least, is too much of an important character to not get a send-off. So I'm giving him one in my head. But she just didn't give him a send-off, though. I think it is worth noting that she just no didn't. No send-offs for Sniff. <laughs> He's just not here. And nobody's mentioned him. Shall we talk about their dedication? Yes, let's do that. So we have a dedication in this book, which is the first time we've had the dedication in the Moomins book. This is dedicated to Vivica. That would be Vivica Bandler, who was Tova Janssen's first big same-sex love, as far as we know. The first spook. And 
We don't know that she didn't have experiences with women before this, but we know that this was a complete sea change. It was a very big, very important relationship to her in which she worked out a lot of her feelings about same-sex attraction in general and what she wanted from a relationship. It was complicated a relationship because Tova was with the man that Snufkin is based on, Atos, at this time. And Vivica's married. That's right. And she chose to stay married in the end. And she chose to stay married. So they were having this sort of big, exciting affair during the writing of Finn Family Moomin Troll. And in fact, we've met Vivica before in the books because Vivica is Bob in Thingamy and Bob. Although it was much more obvious in the original because they were called Tovslan and Vivslan. Slan being a diminutive suffix like lut for us, like piglet. Of Slan, Little Tova. So this was complicated partly because of homosexuality being illegal. I mean, it's even more complicated because Vivica's husband, who was Austrian, him and Vivica together translated some of the Moomin's books yeah. themselves. <laughs> so real complicated. I don't know how much everybody knew or didn't know. So I've read the letters. Okay, so Nina knows. I do know. They were trying to keep it a secret from Vivica's husband. Atos kind of knew and felt a little bit confused about it, but didn't put up much of a fuss. <laughs> I feel like that's a Snufkin-like trait. <laughs> he was a bit confused because Tova had started crying about how she didn't love him anymore, whereas she used to cry about how he didn't love her enough. Right, well, that is confusing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would be confused by that, yeah. But he seems to have been like generally chill with it. However, there was like a lot of theatre about keeping it from... Vivica's husband involving like Tova getting her hairdresser or her greengrocer to write Vivica's address on the envelopes so that the husband wouldn't recognize Tova's handwriting. Ooh. When you say there was a theatre to that, that's also very relevant to this book and to Vivica because Vivica was a theatre director. Yeah. It was Vivica's idea to adapt Comet in Moominland for the stage, and they worked on that together. It's interesting, in the letters, Tova's got all these ideas about like how you could make the background redder and redder yeah. as the comet comes closer and closer, and then that you'd have a big Van Gogh sun in the middle in the last scene. That's what I'm imagining. It sounds like it was really cool. Is that what happened, or is that just her suggestions? So Tova had a lot of plans of things that she wanted to do with Vivica that didn't actually happen. Right. The play did happen, as did an advert for Fizzy Drinks featuring Thimumi and Bob and also a series of advent stories on television. But she also wanted to buy them an island and whisk them away from their husbands. That didn't happen. Yeah, not with this one. She later did that with someone else. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but so they had this really intense epistolary relationship where they hardly ever saw each other, but they were sending all these really, really intense letters to each other. And then quite quickly it fell apart, partly, I think, because Vivica wanted to stay with her husband. But, I mean, impressively, they remain friends after this, including with Vivica's husband. Tova keeps writing to them for the rest of her life. Yeah, there doesn't have to be drama. Well, except that they were lying to the husband. My dad left his first wife for the lodger, who was my mum. They all remained in communication for all of their lives. That's impressive. Like, it doesn't have to be like EastEnders. Yeah. It doesn't have to be drama. You can have these messy, complicated, not perfect situations 
the stories we hear about are the ones where they kill each other or whatever, but that's because that's dramatic and it's not as dramatic to have a story about having an affair but then being friends afterwards. So I've got a couple of excerpts from the letters that I'd like to read to you because of Moomin interests. So this whole love affair is happening while she's writing Finn Family Moomin Troll, which is interesting. So Moomin Summer Madness is written and dedicated to Vivica after they've broken up. That's a move, though. That's like a power move. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but anyway, if we remember the little cloud dodgems... From Finn Family... This is an excerpt from Tova's letter to Vivica. I know you don't believe there is an afterward. How surprised you will be, V, when I come floating along on the little cloud one day and say, Hello, do you still want me? That's interesting as well, because in this book, Little Mai asks about heaven. Yeah. Do we have to go? And how do we get down again? Well, on little cloud dodgems, clearly. Yeah, maybe that was a moment of Vivica-inspired dialogue. And I think after this, we're going to move on to the longing for Snufkin, because there is a lot of longing in these letters. If only we'd had a little more time. Why didn't I ask you to come to the studio when you first wanted to? Why didn't you go to the automobile club party so that we could have met earlier, a year ago, two years ago? You were here all the time, and I knew it. But we have boundless length of time ahead of us, and surely we must be able to keep part of it for ourselves without hurting anyone else. It goes on like that for pages and pages and pages. I'm really looking forward to reading them. I bought the book but didn't get around to reading it, whereas Nina was like, ooh, absorb all the information. Now I'm the expert on this. (laughs) Night swimming deserves a quiet night. So should we talk about the Snufkin thing? Snufkin is conspicuously not in this first half of the book. Although, if you look at the map in the beginning, there is a slight spoiler that he will be here, because somewhere on the map is Snufkin's camp. If you flicked through the book, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Snufkin was in the first half of the book, for there is a picture of Snufkin in the first half. There is a picture of him, but it's just because Moomin Troll is thinking about him. He's thinking about him so hard that it appears in the book. Snufkin was his best friend. Of course, he also liked the Snork Maiden a lot. But still, it can never be quite the same with a girl. No. What a line. (laughs) Hard irony in that. For Tuve, she is probably thinking it can never be quite the same with a boy. Yeah. So many layers, none of them heterosexual. That's what I had to say about that. That's right. Night swimming deserves a quiet night. I'm not sure all these people understand so also this longing for snufkin also goes on for about three pages and all of these like sort of ideas of what might have happened to him could he have fallen down a well could he have been eaten by the groat like anything could have happened to him why isn't he here yet a lot of pining away and looking into deep pools this is moomin trolling his full-on melancholy he's at his most relatable to me Mm. as a character when he's melancholy like when he's not melancholy he annoys me in most of his behaviors but when he's melancholy I can get down with him. And I feel like the true Moomin Troll is is inside this melancholy moment. He needs to like look into that and stop calling the Snort Maiden dear. So the Snort Maiden is trying to help. Like she comes and like pats him on the shoulder and he's like, oh, it's you. <laughs> but also part of Moomin Troll's melancholy, I mean, it's strange. Like one of the things he does is he's hiding his mum and the Snort Maiden's jewellery in a pond. <laughs> 
Like, why is he doing that? <laughs> he likes the way they shine at the bottom of the pool. I know, but that's their, that's their stuff <laughs> of these people that he loves. Since we're talking Moomin Troll, let's move on to like an element that I think is very, very pronounced in this book, which is Moomin Troll and Moomin Mama's codependence. Yeah. Like they're both always worrying about how the other one will feel about things. Mm-hmm. When the floating theatre leaves him, she wakes up in the night like something is amiss. I mean, I think probably a lot of parents at least feel that would happen if their child floated off. It's much more understandable and relatable on Moomin Mama's side, right? She does the same thing with the marmalade. She forgets the marmalade and then she's like, how could I have forgotten? I know Moomin Troll likes marmalade with his tea. Yeah, everything is about him. Yeah. In every circumstance. And... For him, he's like, oh, what would Mama think? How is Mama doing? He's, I guess, a Mama's boy. Yeah. I find that hard to relate to for (laughs) numerous reasons. (laughs) (laughs) They've got a big codependency thing going on. Yes, they have. We're born codependent, but by Moomin Troll's age, I feel like it's time to move on. I don't know, because I don't think Moomin Troll's age is at all specified. He could be any age. True enough. Should we talk about the parenting since we were talking about Moomin Mama and Moomin Troll? I want to talk about the Mimble's daughter's parenting. Well, some of us are parents and others have parenting thrust upon us. Yes. And the Mimble's daughter is very much that. Though she's also quite into it in some ways. So mainly her parenting works, I guess, in the way that a lot of very traditional parenting works. It's threats and bribes, carrot and stick. But she's very honest about how the shouting is for her. So she's standing around <laughs> shouting for Little Mai. Little Mai is not coming. Little Mai is having the thought of, you really should bait me. You should give me something to come for because I'm not going to come for the shouting. And Moomin Papa even points this out to her, like, you could try a different <laughs> approach. I don't think she's coming. She's like, no, 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 it's for me. It's for my conscience. As a person responsible for this young person, it helps my conscience to shout. And then Moomin Papa's like, oh, by all means, carry on if it helps. She doesn't like it when Little Mai asks questions. You know, Little Mai's like, does anything mean anything? And the Mimble's daughter's like, no, don't ask silly questions. (laughs) It's very how adults look to children. Sort of in charge for some reason to be resisted at every turn. How big is Little Mai? She goes in the Mimble's daughter's pocket. She's smaller than an orange because she would swell up to bigger than an orange if she was bitten by an ant. Yeah, she's a size that can seriously involve themselves with ants. Yeah. Her size, just like a Hemingway's dress, changes all the time, right? I think it's another example of how Tuve does not care about consistency of stories. I think it's something to sink into, isn't it? It's sort of like entering a slightly different state of consciousness. You just got to, there's a lot to accept in these books that you really can't pass them or understand them you're right it's like music or something you have to just go with it it has its own internal logics but are not logical for us and i I also think that this kind of logic though where we do see it in the modern world in cartoons we see this kind of logic yeah the simpsons every week would be completely different from the week before but characters would carry on and she was a cartoon writer so part of it's going to be that kind of way of thinking like winnie the pooh is consistent yeah for example nobody wanders out of one end of winnie the pooh book and doesn't come back you know where everyone is in winnie the pooh at all times when new characters come they're there forever yeah Once they've come, unless they go. (laughs) But then you'll be told they've gone. They're not just going to like slip out between two chapters. Which is how it feels like people leave Moomin Valley. 
And I think actually that's interesting because I think that's like Tuve's childhood. Mm. She was living in this house with all of these artists and writers and creatives coming in and out and they disappear. Well, I think that's the war as well. Like something else that comes across in Tova's letters to Vivica is, oh, this person who I grew up with forever, probably dead now. Oh, this person, I think they moved to France. Could you look them up? Otherwise, they're probably dead. There's a lot of people that she knew that she's vaguely worried about and sort of assumes they've died. Yeah, absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense as well. I think Moomin Mama is actually the protagonist of this story. You always think that, Nina. I do. She has some very good lines. I may never wash dishes again. I've got a whole new perspective on my kitchen. I like that. But she also says a lot of like really philosophical things. You know, they're dealing with all the upheaval. And she says, oh, it's not how we're used to things being, but why should everything be exactly as one is used to having it? She also says a terrible thing. She says, only bad people fare badly. Yeah, she does say that. <laughs> of course, everything will turn out okay for us because only bad people fare badly. Yeah. Um, it's a very mum thing to say, though. It is. It's also like very what children's books say to children. Yeah, exactly. You know, you get what you deserve. You make your own destiny. Only boring people get bored. One of the things I think Mumu Mama is good at in this book is talking about the value of having bad experiences. Yeah. And also this kind of idea of like waiting for your new home to come to you. You know, you've lost something, but a loss is also a possibility. There are many more girl characters in this book to the point where I enjoy the fact that I think Moomin Troll is relegated to a second tier character. He is, yeah. Like, you're right that Moomin Mama is one of the protagonists, certainly in this half of the book. Miss Abel is as well. Even the incidental characters are mostly women. Yeah. Like, you know, the mouse wife or Emma, although she's a bit less of an incidental character. She's more of an antagonist. Having said about the good stuff about women representation, I think it's Moomin Troll says it to Stork Maiden in Chapter 5. Please comb your fringe a little because I like to see you beautiful. Yeah. Grim. That's complicated, though, because I think it does help her. Maybe it harks back to her insecurity about her fringe from Finn Family Moomin Troll. Yeah, it's that now he makes a big deal of caring about her hair. She's taught him, your role is to tell me my hair looks good. You got yeah. it wrong before, yeah. so get it right now. I mean, just like you were saying that they've got this weird, like, kidnapping kink, mm-hmm. they're also doing this thing, these, like, extremely rigid gender roles. And I, I really, I find it really gross. Yeah, but um, I think they're both really into it, and I think in that moment when the snork maiden is frightened, it helps her to have something else to focus on and to have some direction from her boyfriend. What I quite like about the way that the heteronormativity of um, Moomin Troll and the Snort Maiden is presented in this book is, first of all, it's deeply queered and complicated by his attraction to Snufkin. Yeah, but it is also often I think played for laughs yeah and so that's nice I'm more comfortable with that than it being an aspirational thing it's quite unusual to have a couple in a children's book that are a couple from beginning to end of the book so they don't become a couple yeah through the story yeah I mean we've have had that happen they did become a couple 
Comet Moominland, maybe? Yeah. And so in this book, they are just a couple. There's no love triangle. There's no, like, will they, won't they? No, that's true. There's no enemies to lovers. It's just they're basically a little married couple, and it's a little bit annoying, but sometimes a bit charming. Yeah, it's true that I think none of the tension in this book comes from their romance. It feels like it's just something you can take as a given that they're together. I think that is quite nice because I think we often represent romance as incredibly like tumultuous yeah. and dramatic and, you know, filled with conflict. The thing is that like most fiction is about, you know, the first five weeks of a relationship. Yeah, new relationship energy. That's what it's all about. But most relationships spend most of their time, if you're lucky. Yeah, if you're lucky. In this comfortable sort of nice, nothing much happens place. And you usually see that represented in grown-ups in children's stories. When they're alone in the tree, I feel like that's like a replay of when Moomin Papa was alone in the tree. Yeah. In Moomin and the Flood in the first book. And I think that's something that Tuve does a lot. We've seen that with the volcano and the comet and the flood and another flood. She comes back to these ideas again and again. And these images. And images in slightly different ways. And I, I think that's good. Yeah. Like, I like that in art. I like it when artists have repeated motifs that they're obsessed with all of their lives and every time you come back to them you see them differently so it's not a repeat no 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 it's a new angle the first flood was a disaster this is a liberation the world is about there's something evolving whatever may come the world keeps revolving they say the next big thing is that the revolution's near But to me it seems quite clear That it's all just a little bit of history repeating Translator detail We've lost the witches about It now just says about Thomas Warburton is a minimalist I'm not keen on that change, Thomas Warburton I'm sorry mm. While I'm talking translators actually The other thing I noticed is that there's A couple of times in this book Where the reader is direct addressed yeah which is quite good because of the theater yeah and there's a lot of direct address to the audience in the theater breaking the fourth wall as it was there's no fourth wall on the theater i don't know if that was something that he's done or that tuve did i don't know how i feel about being addressed as a dear reader i like it well that's good <laughs> you obviously identify yourself as a reader there's a gag in this book about the props cupboard. Mr. Propertius. They read it as Mr. Propertius. Propertius was, in fact, a Roman poet. So I think that oh. either the translator or Tuve was having an extra gag. And in terms of theatre in this book, Misabel is very much like a tragic heroine. Mm -hmm. He is dead and gone, lady. He is dead and gone. Womper, it and describes him. The Womper is a why and what kind of person. He wants to know the why and the what to everything. <laughs> now, the person that that reminds me of in theatre history is Hamlet, mm. who is unfortunately so preoccupied with the why and what that he doesn't do anything and causes everyone to die, <laughs> like the selfish, horrible person that he is. Lots of shade, Hamlet. No, not going back on it. To be... Or not to be.
the veranda flat that is mentioned is a bit like the balcony scene in yeah. Romeo and Juliet. Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Obviously, there's a lot of Midsummer, so there's Midsummer Night's Dream going through all of this. Here comes Oberon. And here my mistress. So there's a big Shakespeare thing. Yeah, there is. Skipping ahead to whistling on stage. I'm ashamed to say, even though, I, of course, I studied theatre at university, I didn't know why you shouldn't whistle in, on stage. Was it signals so that it didn't drop the sandbags on your head? Wait for it. Let me say okay. it. i done the research. Uh, Don't guess it. So, yes, not whistling on stage, listeners. Uh, goes back to at least the 17th century and it's because prompters did indeed use bells and whistles to cue set changes possibly borrowed from ship signals for rigging because the workers who did the ships often then worked in the theatre in the off-season. Oh, that's cool. Even after practical whistling ended and was replaced with lights, the tradition remained. Theatre is, of course, full of... Traditions, you're not supposed to say Macbeth on stage. You're supposed to say break a leg. Being but a mere butler, you will not know the great theatre tradition that one does never speak the name of the Scottish play. What, Macbeth? Ah! Hot potato officer's horse, but we make amends. Ah! It sounds like what we're talking about is superstition. Moomin Troll does some very interesting superstition right at the beginning when Moomin Mama's coming. It's for me, he thought. I'm sure it's for me. She always makes the first bark boat of the summer for the one she likes most. Then she muddles it all away a little, because she doesn't want anybody to feel hurt. If that water spider goes crawling eastward, there'll be no dinghy. And if it goes westward, she's made a dinghy so small that you hardly dare take it in your paw. The spider crawled off eastward, and tears welled up in Moomin Troll's eyes. Why does he care so much about whether there's a dinghy? Because he's all muddled up and confused with longing for Snuffkin, and it's made him really insecure. Okay, you've had an answer, and I, 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 I agree with it. It's a good one. There's superstition, and there is magic, too, in this book. And there's tradition, so I think we could sort of follow quite neatly on there into, like, midsummer traditions. And midsummer traditions are all magical traditions. Yeah, so there's quite an interesting sort of relationship in this book between some elements of Christianity and some elements of paganism. So clearly, at least the Mimble's daughter in some way believes in a heaven, at least a little bit, which is a very Christian idea. But then there's reference to... Midsummer traditions. I did a little bit of research about midsummer traditions in Finland. It's a massive, massive, massive thing. Like, it's the biggest holiday outside of Christmas. It's the biggest booze sales outside of Christmas. I mean, it was in the UK too back in the day. Like, this is like, I would say, pagan traditions across Europe. Mm. But you're doing very specific Finland. I'm doing very specifically Finland. So it used to be a celebration of Ukko, Finnish god of the weather and the harvest. So it used to be about getting in a good harvest. I mean, it's also true that in Nordic countries, unlike here, there's no real night in midsummer. It doesn't really get properly dark at all. It does here. Right. Right. So I think it feels even more mystical and magical in a way. So stuff that you would do at midsummer, you would eat and get drunk. And we mention like Moomin Papa's palm wine is always ripe by midsummer. You would light fires to frighten away the bad spirits because there's an idea that we're nearer to the spirit realm or the fairy realm at midsummer. So that's what the fires are for. And they first think of Emma as a ghost. Yeah. So that is another kind of reference to that. Well, and maybe they should have kept her away with a fire. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) There's also... Picking flowers and making wishes. Lord Maiden talks about as a lot of traditions around fertility and marriage, a lot of weddings 
at Midsummer. It's specifically linked to finding out who you're going to marry yeah. and picking the flowers. Yeah. There's also jumping bonfires. Did you ever do that? Bonfire jumping? I've not done it, but I would do it if it was available to me. I used to when I was little. We had the Feu de Saint-Jean in France, which I think is actually a winter solstice practice fair. And you would have a massive bonfire and then everybody who could would jump over it. Obviously, I left this place when I was five, so I was very little. But they'd have a little bonfire. Just for you. Just a box of matches lit on fire and you just jump over it. No, it's a proper fire. And it was like me and the other children. So you'd hold your mum and your dad's hand and they, your parents would run either side of the fire. Then you, you would run into the fire and they would lift you over at the last minute. Wicked. It was really cool. That's great. And I was reading about this practice and it was supposed to be the person who managed to jump highest. That would be the height of the crop in the coming season. So, you know, you want to try and jump really high to get a really good harvest. There's a big distinction between the midsummer magical time mm. and the midwinter magical time. In the midsummer, which Midsummer Night's Dream demonstrates incredibly it's a time when the barriers between worlds are thin and fairies are around. But in the midsummer, it's the safer time. Yeah. The spirits are there, but they'll be playful with you. Yeah. Everyone in Midsummer Night's Dream gets mixed up, has weird experiences, but it all is all right in the end. Not the case midwinter. That is about being terrified they could get you, build the fires to ward them off. Yeah. Another Finnish tradition is that girls would peer into wells to see the face of their suitor. I'm talking about little Mai looking into that watery hole. And little Mai's suitor is herself, (laughs) which is correct and right. Yeah. In terms of talking about kind of theatre and traditions, I did quite a lot of research for a new section of the show. Clothes corner it's not so good is it the contents of the closet inside the closet yeah (laughs) so there's a whole sequence where the snort maiden tries on these dresses and there's this really big description of lots of different kinds of materials and obviously lots of them i was familiar with but some i wasn't so i looked them all up Hool is netting or gauze, mm-hmm. in, which is in hexagons. Swan's down is not made of swan's down. It can be. It's either actual down or a fabric named for it made from wool mixed with silk or cotton. We've got brocade, which is a decorative shuttle woven fabric made in silks, often with gold and silver threads. Oh, very luxurious. And we've got spangles, which was my favourite word. And when I found out what they are, shiny metal used to decorate clothes. So sequins, basically. Brilliant. When the snort maiden was feeling very intimidated by all of these dresses, I was like getting ideas. (laughs) Ways to describe the things I want to wear. Oh, what were you envisaging wearing? Well, spangles, definitely. But Swanstown sounds pretty good. It sounds a bit like velvety. Yeah, well, I like velvet. Mm. And actually, while we're talking about velvet, one bit of Moomin lore that we got in this book was that it feels like stroking white velvet to stroke a Moomin. To stroke a Moomin's nose. There's a lot of, like, sort of nuzzling in this book. I feel like we've broadened out the sort of forms of Moomin affection. Right, from just tail-based. From just tail-based to there's quite a lot of nose action. So we can go to your botany corner. So there are only really three plants mentioned, the most prominent of which is moss, which is really interesting, and which you, as a witch, Dave, probably are interested in. Yeah, very interested in moss, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm not exactly a witch. I'm more witch adjacent, or and also I'm not just a witch. I'm a wizard or wizard adjacent. Can you get out of my natural history corner? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I'll take my two different kinds of skirts off. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk about mosses and lichens especially. Mosses and lichens are two life forms that are super, super ancient, and they need relatively little. Mosses are typically one cell thick along the surface of whatever they're on. Lichens aren't really a plant or a fungus. They are a relationship between a plant and a fungus. They're sort of a mutually beneficial ecosystem. There's no such thing as a singular lichen. It is in and of itself plural. They are liminal in their basic construction. Yeah. They can't be anything but in between. They're non-binary. Yeah. You were talking about the philosophy of Moomin Mama and about waiting for things to come to you. That's literally all mosses and lichens can do. Right. They just be there. Right. And things flow through them and they're able to just take things in through the surface of their skin. It's just being there, exchanging and being in relationship. Mosses and lichens are the plural, interdependent, non-binary creatures of your dreams. That was the first half of Moomin Summer Madness. This book was one that I didn't read as much. I've only read once, actually, as an adult. Do you think maybe you didn't have a copy at home? Yeah, that is indeed the reason. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have a copy. So I'd never heard of this until I was an adult and I read this in my Moomenison. Are you a bit upset for young you? Yes, I think this is a great one. This one's great. I mean, this is up there with Comet and Moominland and Moominland Midwinter, which are my current faves. This is top quality Moomin material i agree every week on the podcast we like to ask a question to our idea our understanding of snufkin you can ask us these questions for snufkin and we will feature them on the podcast you can find us at the pod goblin on both twitter and on instagram yeah and that's where you can ask us these questions and not just that you can talk to us about the moomins in general you could also email us thepodhat at gmail.com today's question has been sent in by frowning with daisies dear snufkin my father and brother warned me about the prince of denmark but they don't understand him like i do or i thought i did One night he burst into my room with a hellish expression upon his face, stared at me and nodded three times and left, without saying a word. I told my father and brother, and they think this means he loves me. Naturally, they arranged to spy on me and my beloved to see how he speaks to me in private. My prince saw right through them and bade me go to a nunnery, and then he staged a weird play and made sex jokes to me the whole time. I'm so confused. What would Snufkin do? Signed, Drowning with Daisies. This is obviously a reference to Hamlet. This is written by Nina's version of Ophelia. It's another message that we've gathered from the fictional heroines of the past. We thought we'd go with a theatrical one because of, you know, all the theatre stuff in this book. Yeah, and it's actually quite hard to do questions from Midsummer Night's Dream. They all get answered. Luckily... Hamlet's a tragedy, so it's horrible. In the end, everyone dies. Spoilers. Spoilers for Hamlet. (laughs) Dave, you're talking as a drama graduate and not a snuffkin. That, I was going to say, is actually a real problem for this one. 
I mean, I don't know what Snufkin would make of this. A lot of it would baffle him. It is baffling, though. It is completely baffling behaviour from the Prince of Denmark. Let's assume that Snufkin has not read or seen Hamlet and is taking this question at face value. Okay, so he kind of does know what a father and a brother are about. Maybe first he would be confused about taking romantic advice from your father and your brother, because I don't think Snufkin would do that. I think Snufkin does what Snufkin likes. I don't know if Snufkin has much, like, he has romantic feelings about the world, but he doesn't really have romances. I think Snufkin's romance with the world is his primary partner, and so it's hard for him to relate, I think. It's not that hard to relate. I mean, the world is also confusing and messy and not a particularly good communicator. Right. I guess the world is a little bit like the Prince of Denmark. It's true. Yeah. Let's look at this behaviour. He burst into Drowning with Daisies' room, nodded three times with a hellish expression upon his face, and then left. What would Snufkin make of that? These things happen. Sometimes people pop into my tent. I don't like it. We could put some barrier in place. So I guess Snufkin says, like, get a lock on your door. Yeah, lock your door. This business about, like, the father and brother spying, I think Snufkin would hate that. It seems like park keeper behaviour. Yeah. Seems like policeman behaviour. Mm-hmm. And then get me to a nunnery is kind of shaming, right? And I think he would definitely say, go to a nunnery if you want to, but don't let anyone tell you what to do. Yeah. Nobody is treating you well in this Drowning with Daisies. Everybody is treating you as a piece of property to be passed around and commented upon and pushed from place to place. You need to get a lock on your door and better friends. Property isn't great. It certainly isn't great when you are the property. Yeah. I also think that he would give her the best advice, the advice she should have taken. Go out into the world with your tent and your knapsack, and your pipe, and your mouth organ. She would have probably survived. Yeah. You know, she wouldn't have gone mad. She wouldn't have been gaslit by this awful man. She'd have instead gone out, had her own adventures. All of it would have been good. Perfect. Well, hope that helped, Drowning with Daisies. I really hope that she listens, because what really happens in that play is not right. Dave, I think you're up first with the Spirit of the Moomins. My Spirit of the Moomins this week is Guillermo del Toro's version of Pinocchio. It's a delight. If you haven't watched it yet, do. It's available on Netflix. The reason I picked it for this week is because it is very theatrical. It is old school stop motion animation, but also puppetry is a big part of its influence. It's about making us understand we're watching puppets. Everyone is a puppet. That's the beauty of it. So not just the actual puppet, but everybody else is a puppet. Everyone's playing a part. It's also anti-fascist. It's set in Mussolini's Italy. There are fascists in it. Fascism is presented not just as the bad people, but also as all the people. Mm. And it's very much about the the circus as well as the original Pinocchio story was, which again is a kind of theatre. Yeah. And the most Moomin spirited thing about Guillermo de Toro's Pinocchio is the depiction of the cricket. Yeah. The cricket is Moomin Papa. A bit of Moomin Papa and a bit of the muskrat. 
Yeah. A very delightful character played by you, McGregor. Yes. So what's your spirit of the Moomins this week, Nina? My spirit of the Moomins is a book. <laughs> it's a book by Diana Wynne Jones because she's my favourite. It's called The Spellcoats, and it's the story of a large family with lots of children who are always bickering with each other. At the very beginning of the book, there is a huge flood. Their chickens all fly away to roost on a tall hill, and then their cow gets washed away by the flood. And then eventually, there's nothing much to do but to climb into their little boat. And so into the boat they all climb, still bickering as they go, and they traverse various strange and fantastical landscapes and meet strange and fantastical people. There are also a number of very mystical, maybe divine fires in this book. Fire is used in a very similar way as it is maybe at Midsummer to summon certain things. It's a very magical book. It's the third in a series, but the series is so loosely connected that really it doesn't matter what order you read them in. So it's very like the Moomins in that regard. Of course, everybody should read the whole Dale Mark Quartet. And that is my mission in life, to get everybody to read the Dale Mark Quartet. However, I have set my expectations lower here, and I'm asking people to read the Weird Flood one. Dave, it's your turn for a Spirit of the Podgoblins hat. This week, my Spirit of the Podgoblins hat is So I Got to Thinking, which is a Sex and the City podcast where the author and journalist Juno Dawson and magazine editor Dylan B. Jones look at episodes of Sex and the City from the beginning all the way. They even covered the most recent reboot. I'm not a fan of Sex and the City, but I really enjoy their journey through it. And one of the things they're trying to do is ask the question that the journalist Carrie asks in every episode and ask, does that make sense now? What is the answer? Is there an answer to that question? That's a good hook. Juno Dawson is a trans woman and Dylan is a gay cis man. And so they're looking at it through queer eyes. Just some good friends to spend time with. If I've got to fill a bit of time, I'll be like, oh, I'll bob on one of those episodes and hear what they've got to say about that particular episode of Sex in the City. So that's my spirit of the Podgoblins hat this week. Good. So that's all for episode 9 But before we go, here are the tiny cliffhangers for next week's episode Will little Mai survive her tumble into the water? Where in the world is Snuffkin? And will Moomintroll and the Snort Maiden ever see their family again until next week when we will be reading the second half of Moomin Summer Madness make sure never to whistle on stage bye bye